This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on now? What the hell is going on is we're doing a little bit of a deep dive on uh, what our friend Hugh Hewitt calls the knucklehead caucus in the House of Representatives, the people who were holding up the speaker's vote. And we're not, not so much the speaker's vote anymore, but talking about what this means for the future of the Republican Party. And our conversation was really about what this means for a future of a serious conservative Republican foreign policy going forward, because you've got the knucklehead caucuses, as we discussed with Chad Pergram, is not a unified force. There are there are serious people like Chip Roy in it. And then there are not so serious people like Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates in it. But they're, they're newly empowered. And there's real concern that we're going to cut defense spending. We're going to cut aid to Ukraine. They profess a Taftian isolationism that the Republican Party hasn't seen in great force in a long time. And we, we sort of we spent some time talking with our guest Hugh Hewitt today about how we can bring back a Reaganite foreign policy and keep that in the mainstream of the Republican Party. What do you think, Danny? Well, I'm less of an optimist, uh, I have to say. You know, I, the, one of the pleasures in talking to Hugh is he's diving down uh, on the difference between what I call noise and substance. But the truth is that what the public hears, what guides the public, what guides the voter is is noise. It's not serious people doing serious work. I worry so much that the party has become defined by the likes of Lauren Boebert and, and Matt Gates, And a big part of that is the fact that the media, the, the what people call the media democratic complex, which I think it is perhaps a little bit bombastic, but is largely accurate, is amplifying the voices of knuckleheads. I think that word is much too nice. I, there's a stronger word in my mind here. It amplifies their voices and diminishes the voices of the Mike Gallagher's, the Tom Cotton's, the really serious people who are trying to do good things for our country, who are trying to solve the real problems that are facing the American people. And as a result, what people see is that, you know, the party is led by a bunch of lunatics. They're not, though, entirely. One of the problems we face coming out of this midterm election is that because our majority is so small, those voices have been amplified and empowered in a way that is disproportionate to their influence in the party at large, because the majority was so small that Kevin McCarthy could not get elected speaker until they relented. If we had a 20 or 30 seat majority, no one would care what Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates think. So I think that's a, that's a unique situation that he finds himself in Congress. But you know, you've got Mike Gallagher, who's an incredibly serious guy, who's just been appointed the chair of the Select Committee on China. And he's going to be an incredibly important voice on foreign policy. You've got people like Mike Waltz, who's a former Green Beret, who's a great uh, spokesman on foreign policy. And I, I tell you, I, I, I've talked to Mike and he told me, I guarantee you, 
that a budget resolution cutting the defense budget is not going to pass in this Congress. Um, so I take him at his word. I think he thinks that they've got the votes that they need to stop the, he wouldn't put it this way because he has to work with them, but the knucklehead caucus from doing the kind of damage they would like to do. From his mouth to God's ears is all I can say. Mark, you and I had an amazing conversation with Hugh Hewitt, and we agreed that we were going to keep our intro short because the reality is that when you have a radio host on as a guest, he spends a lot of time interviewing you, and you, you spend a lot less time interviewing him. So we ended up having an outstanding and interesting conversation. Uh, but Mark and I talked a lot more than we usually do in these. So we're going to we're gonna go straight to our interview. And for those two or three of you out there who don't know who Hugh Hewitt is, he ha- hosts one of, I think, America's best uh, radio shows. He's with the Salem Radio Network, one of the most thoughtful folks out there on the conservative side. He is also a, a lawyer. He was an official in the Reagan administration. He was the president president and CEO of the Richard Nixon Foundation. He was a law professor at Chapman. And he is, like you, Mark, a columnist at the Washington Post and a commentator on Fox News. He's just an awesome guy. We're so glad to have him. Here's our conversation. Well, Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Good to be on with you, Mark, and with you, Danny. Great to be back on with you both, actually. Excellent. Thank you. Well, look, we've had a lot of data coming in about the state of the Republican Party. We had data coming in from the voters who gave the Senate back to Biden and the Democrats, despite the worst inflation in 40 years, worst border crisis in American history and all the rest of it, worst crime wave since the 1990s and a narrow majority in the House. And then we had this fiasco of an election for the Speaker of the House in which this small band of I think you called them knuckleheads. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. took the party hostage for a while. What's going on and what's the state of the Republican Party? I divide the knucklehead caucus into two parts. The Chip Roy led faction, which was looking for substantive change. Got it. Was never personal about McCarthy. And then the six and the six. Kevin's not the punisher type. He's not a Nancy Pelosi when it comes to bringing the hammer. But uh, I don't think there'll be a lot of carrots being given to those six. But whereas the other 14, I expect they'll be fully integrated in a functioning conference. Hugh, thank you for being with us. It's always such a pleasure. I understand what you're saying. This was a little bit like getting into Harvard. All the work was in the admissions process, but (laughs) at least for Kevin McCarthy. But there's still this rule in place that means that if he crosses any one member, they can put his speakership to a vote. And the thing that worries me about the knucklehead part of the knucklehead caucus is that this circus that took place with the 15 votes for leader could be reiterated multiple times through the next two years. You sound a little less worried about that than I am. I am because I did hear through a number of back channel sources uh, that a number of congressmen that the blowback experienced by Matt Gates was intense. Now, he raised money off of this in small dollar donors by repeated appeals to whatever, whoever it is that donates money to Matt Gates. I don't know who that is. That's an interesting show I should do someday. So it was profitable for him. I don't think it's profitable to go back to the well, absent an extraordinary series of events, which would rally the same six people. And then watch Chip Roy. If Chip Roy... And I don't know if many people listening know his background. He got into into government as a ghostwriter for Rick Perry. 
He worked on the Rick Perry campaign. He went to the University of Texas Law School, Lino Braulio student, worked as an assistant United States attorney prosecutor, worked for John Cornyn, worked for Ted Cruz. Then he was a Texas assistant attorney general. And then he became a congressman from Texas. He's a very serious, competent, smart guy. And he's a debt hawk. And he's one of the legitimate debt hawks who wants to cut the military rather than have the debt increase. There's a lot of waste spending and abuse there. He'd prefer that it stay at fiscal year 21 levels, et cetera. But he's a serious man. And I don't think he's going to go after Kevin McCarthy absent a huge ideological divide, which isn't there. But they did want the weaponization committee. They did want the, the rule of one. And so if Chip Roy or one of his 14 introduced the motion, it's real trouble for the for the caucus. If Matt Gates and his people do, I don't think it's real trouble for the caucus because they'd vacate the speaker's chair and there isn't a candidate. It came close to melting down because there wasn't a can there is nobody but Kevin McCarthy. There's a hard group of 50 people who will never vote for anybody but Kevin McCarthy because they're not going to get pushed around. And so that was their line in the sand, and they held their line in the sand. Hugh, let's talk a little bit about what this means for policy, because you said, you know, the, the knucklehead caucus, I agree with you, could be Chip Roy is a serious guy. I know Chip really well, and he's no Matt Gates. But even after Chip came around, the Matt Gates of the world were still holding Kevin McCarthy's speakership hostage until they finally relented and voted present. And what doesn't divide them is wanting to cut defense. I don't know where Chip stands on aid to Ukraine, but, you know, I, we could have a situation where the Republicans have taken over and they're cutting defense budget. We're not supporting the freedom fighters. They, we used to call them in the Reagan years, freedom fighters. And the Republican Party could be taking a real isolationist turn. Are you worried about well, that? A very. Uh, that would be the nightmare scenario. And Admiral Stavridis on my radio show this morning, and I just asked him to explain for the benefit of legislators who listen, and there's a good audience that listens in the morning, that what happens with the sequestration to the Pentagon and what happens with a CR. And Danny knows this better than anybody. It's a disaster. It's the worst department to run on a, on a month-by-month basis, and it can't be run on a month-by-month basis. And the Admiral explained in great detail why it's not just weapon systems. It's very small stuff and it's very big stuff. You don't get promotions done. You don't get change of commands done. You can't forward deploy that which is scheduled to deploy. You keep ships out too long. It's a terrible way to run the government. And I think it's 1940 vis-a-vis China. Uh, And so I don't think it's responsible for the Republican Party to act that way. And I think That could split the Republican Party. And I'm going to start beating that drum. That is the big, big issue for me. I don't mind if they go after the Jordan Committee. They want to look into the Joe Biden documents. They want to repeat the Mueller thing. I think it's all kind of nonsense because they're going to win on national security and inflation if they win in two years. But if they could split the party on national defense, I really do believe that. That's the real threat. There's a poll that just came out that shows that 52 to 48 Republican voters want to cut aid to Ukraine. I mean, you know, we always used to dismiss these isolationists as this minority within the Republican Party. And I think they are, but they're getting to be a bigger minority and a more forceful minority. And in the House, they seem to have increasing power. How do we push back on that, Hugh? Well, you two aren't old enough, but from 78 to 80, when Reagan was running, he was running. uh, He didn't quite use the bear in the woods ad until 1984, but he was running on the threat of the Soviets, on the Cubans in Africa, on the need to roll back. And then Afghanistan happened right after Iran fell and the world was in a real state of crisis. 
I think it's incumbent on every Republican to speak to why a Russian tank blown up by a Ukraine tank is a beautiful thing. And I think it's a wonderful thing that that we speak up about Taiwan and how this is a mess. We, we just have to sell it because somehow there is an isolationist streak and it's old. I mean, it goes back to Robert Taft in Ohio and Richard Nixon used to battle it. it a bit of it was in the Goldwater wing, but I thought it had been eradicated. I thought it was gone, but it's obviously not gone. And Ukraine is the testing ground for that. The thing that I don't understand, and Mark, thank you, you asked exactly the question I was about to ask. So let's just dig a little deeper for a second. Of course, you're right here that this strain in the party never quite disappeared. But I think that the the Cold War and the existence of communist Russia, the Soviet Union, really helped paper over some of those isolationist tendencies inside the Republican Party. But what exactly are these guys thinking, you know, I know exactly what the Democrats who don't want to support Ukraine are thinking. They're thinking America's a bad country. America shouldn't be in the world because we so disaster wherever we go. We should be at home working on our own racist past because that's that's the priority, not some, you know, not a bunch of people in Ukraine who we neither know nor care about. Okay, fair enough. I don't think that's the perspective of the isolationists in the Republican Party. And yet we see them. They're very vocal. We've seen them on some of the major networks. We see them in the in the party. We see them, uh, as, as Mark said, now reflected in the polls. What are these guys thinking exactly is going to happen if they allow or urge Russia to defeat Ukraine? Yeah, I, I think, Danny, there are so many different groups feeding into this river of anti-Ukraine that I I wanted to make sure I distinguish the two big ones. There are some, it's a very small number, I'm I'm open to being told I'm wrong about that, a very small number who admire Putin, very small number. And uh, the Dana Rohrabachers of the world, uh, and I've known Dana forever, he was California congressman, was in the White House with me with Reagan, and Dana's always kind of been nutty on foreign policy, and he was a Putin apologist. I don't think that number is more than 1% of the Republican Party. The bigger problem is that we have monetized eccentricity. That means if you can get attention, you can A, get clicks, you can get viewers on any network. Most importantly for political people, you can raise money from the 1% in America, which is 3 million people who love uh, Putin or who hate America spending money abroad, who think we ought to be spending money on the border and that we're diverting money from the border. We have monetized eccentricity and sometimes we've monetized extremism in the Congress. And that that's enough for cynical people trying to make a buck, make a name, build an audience. And I think it, it's a that 5248 number belies my argument. But I would ask the question a different way. I'd love to, to see if it polled. If NATO members paid an equivalent amount as the United States does, would you support the United States continuing aid to Ukraine? That's the nuance that I think is sometimes lost. I'm reading Mike Pompeo's new book, Never Give an Inch. It's the best memoir of the Trump year by far. Not surprisingly, Pompeo having spent the only national security member of the team that spent all four years in there. And they went after NATO hard and often. And I think a a key part of Trumpism is fair share, pay your fair share. And we're tired of getting dinked by the Europeans. And so 
What do you think, Mark, the number would be if the question was phased my way? Or, or Danny, do you think that that's part of the opposition? I mean, I do think that burden sharing is very important, but I'll say this, if none of our European allies were helping, I would still believe that it was in our interest to see a dictator, a tyrant like Putin defeated for the simple reason that history tells us what would happen next. You know, there is only a matter of time before bad guys come for us because we are the big man on campus. And so, you know, we can either see him squashed early or we can wait for him to grow and become a genuine threat. The Soviet Union was a genuine threat. Putin, if unfettered, could be a genuine threat. And that's why I don't get the argument that people don't care. I mean, who cares? You know, who cared about the Sudetenland in, in World War II? You know, it's not about that. It's a, this is all about Putin. And as you rightly say, I think there are very few people uh, who want to help Putin. Yeah, Danny, one of the reasons I gave a list to the RNC of people that I thought should moderate the debates, which I believe will begin in July. And I've named both of you because I think those debates will be crucial in setting the Republican Party course. And I will be astonished if you put up on that stage the former president, if he's still running at that point, Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin, Larry Hogan, and you know, a half dozen other people, Greg Abbott, you name them. They're like 17 people. And you ask, should we be aiding Ukraine? I believe the number of people who will take a J.D. Vance view will be zero, zero. But you'll get a lot of, we ought to be demanding our allies pitch in. Mark, do you agree with that guess? I do agree with that guess, except for maybe the former president. <laughs> uh, well, but, I, uh, I have no idea what he'd say. <laughs> well, that's part of the mystique, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Why well, is the best but, interview in America? I always say that. Uh, you never know yeah. what's going to come out. That is very true. But I guess what, what I worry about is most Americans are not isolationists and most con Republicans and conservatives are not isolationists. They're reluctant internationalists. They need to be convinced. They need to be convinced that, that we commit forces or we commit our prestige around the world, that it's in our interests and that it's vital to our national security interests and how few people are making that case today. I think that's one of the reasons why support for Afghanistan plummeted on the right is because we went for, you know, between Obama and, and Trump, we went for years without anybody making the case to the American people why it's necessary that we be there. And, you know, we, I guess I'm just worried that on our, on our side, the, the loudest voices are from the people who want to get out, who want to cut defense, who want to cut and run and, you know, even call Zelensky, you know, names like punk and things like that. And then the people who are in favor don't want to offend the base. And so they're not out there talking uh, in the same way. I, I just worry that there's a dearth of leadership on for a Reaganite internationalism. I, I hope you're wrong. And I think the Gallagher committee is the most important move of this Congress, because if he does what he has told me he is going to do, take the show on the road, make the argument, Paul, call, you know, Bob Iger and, and Adam Silver from Disney and the NBA, respectively, to talk about the chokehold, talk about that they have done the greatest shipbuilding effort in the history of the planet bigger than the British Empire when it came to holes in the water during their Napoleonic Wars. The Chinese have in five years built a Navy at a rate that no one has ever seen absent wartime in World War II. And we always did it incrementally, not from a standing start. I think we have a case to be made and that the Gallagher Committee will be 
critical in making that case. And I'm kind of optimistic because the facts are where Danny put him. It, the Satan land has happened. It, you know, that's Ukraine. That's it happened. Only they're not they're not going the way of Czechoslovakia. They're fighting back. It's you know, it's 1940. I think the most effective argument that we need to be making that doesn't seem to be getting made is that what we're doing in Ukraine is the Reagan doctrine. I think we're in a very similar situation now where we were when Ronald Reagan came into office, where, you know, we're after Vietnam, people were tired of sending troops around the world to fight people and they didn't want our boys fighting and dying in foreign wars. And so we had to figure out a way to confront an expansionist Russia without sending American troops everywhere. And Ronald Reagan actually committed the fewest forces into combat of any president in, in modern times. But he did. He supported freedom fighters around the world and in, in Nicaragua and Angola and in Afghanistan. And that's essentially what we're doing now. We're, we, people are tired of sending troops after Iraq and Afghanistan. They don't want to deploy American troops. And so we're supporting freedom fighters in Ukraine and we're arming our friends in Taiwan and we're, we're trying to deter our enemies with other people who are willing to fight them for us. And there's a caucus of Republicans and these knuck- and this knucklehead caucus that are channeling their inner Ted Kennedy. <laughs> They're opposing yeah. contra aid. They're opposing the Reagan defense buildup. Like, how, where, where do we get a Ted Kennedy problem. caucus in the Republican Party? Well, for 14 years, we have had a commander in chief, beginning with President Obama through President Trump, through now President Biden, who are suspicious of the use of hard power in any way, shape, or form. Hard power is Ukraine. It doesn't mean American military personnel in my world. You two have to define it for me, for your world. But in my world, it's arming the Mujahideen and it's arming Zelensky. That's hard power. For 14 years, we've had the number one center attraction in America has been a president of both parties, three of them who are hostile to hard power. That is the deficit we have in public opinion. Uh, The knucklehead caucus is a problem. But we really need a Reagan. And Jerry Ford made the same arguments. And George H.W. Bush made the same argument. And W, I'm sure you two got the treatment from W. Well, Mark, you heard it all the time. He used to bring in journalists to the Oval to tell them why we had to be in Iraq, even though it was hard. Well, if you don't have a president leading, it's the, the voices for withdrawal have all the space in the world. And they make money on it. I want to broaden our conversation a little bit, uh, because even though this is what is near and dear to your, to Mark's and to my heart, it's not first and, and foremost. One of the things that we talked about before the election was you know, why the Biden administration was going to lose and lose big in the midterms. Now, he ended up not losing big at all, but it was rampant crime a crisis of heretofore unseen proportions at the border, a cultural crisis in our education system, inflation that many Americans have never seen in their lifetime. What I ask myself is, okay, you know, Mark and I have argued a little bit about Hunter Biden's laptop. We can argue a little bit more about classified documents. Is the Republican Congress going to show the kind of leadership that suggests to people for 2024 that they have real solutions to the real problems that they face? I got to confess to you, I'm very worried about Ukraine. Uh, I'm very worried about China, Mike Gallagher and all of his great, great uh, compatriots, notwithstanding. But I also worry about Republican leadership. What do you think? Uh, I I believe that it all depends upon the nominating process. The debates get underway in July in Milwaukee. 
There's probably going to be 12 to 15 of them. And then we're in the presidential campaign in Iowa. A year from now, we're voting and in Iowa. And the presidential campaign will drive politics in the way that 1980 drove politics, uh, the Carter-Reagan disposition. So everything depends um, in terms of national security on how the framing goes. I, I, I'm stunned that President Biden is running for re-election. He is infirm, in my view, not demented, not um, uh, not capable of being president. Just, just, he's an old man. Uh, uh, no Country for Old Men is a movie and no job for old men is the White House. And I think the, the Republican case will not come from Congress. The only thing they can do is highlight the debt and supply what is needed in the, in the short term. Jack Kemp set the terms of the argument early in 78 to 80, but they didn't have these spectacles. If you two can look it up, you're too young. 1978 to 80, uh, two candidates would get together somewhere, like Reagan and Bush would get together in New Hampshire. They weren't organized by the party. For a few years, they were organized by anyone who wanted to hold one. Now the parties have exercised central control, and now they will be very regimented. And that's good. And I think it has the capability of elevating and amplifying the best messages of the Gallagher Committee and the best messages of, you know, we got some great hawks like Dan Sullivan, a very articulate hawk. Tom Cotton, very articulate hawk. We've got some great hawks and we need them to be front and center and arguing Pompeo's campaign and he's running for president. It's going to be all about peace through strength. So I'm an optimist until we lose in 2024. And then I'm glad that it's your job and not mine after that. I'm, gonna, I'm signed through 2028. After that, I'm giving up. I'm, I'm tired of fighting this fight every 10 years. <laughs> Well, here we don't want you off the battlefield yet. We need you. Um, <laughs> but, I, I really, but, isn't this is just the same fight. It's the same fight again and again and again. Only this time social media gives the megaphone to people with no credentials. They don't read anything. I would ask either of you, have you read Henry Kissinger's new book, Leadership, The Last Chapter, the most depressing chapter by any major public figure I've ever read? Tell us about no, not it. yet. Uh, the last chapter, after he writes these wonderful portraits of Thatcher and Reagan and Nixon and, and, and six leaders, he finishes with, we've entered the age of image and we've left reading behind today. Engaging with a serious book in a complex argument is as countercultural as memorizing an epic poem is for the people of the baby boom generation. Of course, I never memorized one epic poem. So if I extrapolate from my own experience, that means nobody's reading and thinking critically about national security. And the national security left and right, you know, the center left and the center right has completely failed the American people when it comes to making arguments that stick on national security. I'm part of that problem. I don't know if you've had talks about that at AEI, but we really have not, we took a holiday from history in 1989 and Kissinger doesn't think we're out of it yet. And I don't find much reason to argue with him. That's fascinating. I think um, he's right. Yeah, I think he's right too. Very depressing. But you made me a little bit less depressed in the thought that maybe some presidential candidates are going to come forward and start making this case. Because you're right, you know, the, the knucklehead caucus has the megaphone now, but as soon as the presidential campaign, it takes over the airwaves. No one cares what they have to say. Everyone wants to hear what, what the candidates running for president have to say. Well, let's talk a little bit about how that could, because obviously, the answer to how do we restore a Reaganite foreign policy, a Reaganite defense policy, a Reaganite fiscal policy uh, is to get another Reagan. 
right? Yeah. So what are what do you see the chances of us actually having another Reagan come out of this process? Well, I think Ron DeSantis is a naval intelligence officer who deployed with the SEALs and is very serious on national security. He doesn't talk about it much because he's a governor. Uh, so he's not one. Uh, Chris Sununu doesn't talk about it at all, though he's watched it from afar. Greg Abbott is concerned with the border, not really a national security. The national security argument will come, I believe, from Mike Pompeo and Vice President Pence. And they'll both be on the stage and they will not get off of the stage. There's no way the RNC can block either of those gentlemen from the stage. And Donald Trump will just figure out what he's feeling that day. And if he wants to make the argument that Afghanistan would never have happened, he will make that argument. Now, Pompeo will get hit with the picture of him sitting with the Mujahideen in, in Qatar, right? It will be, it'll be fabulous to hear them all say, it will be stunning for the audience to hear them all say that we ought to stay engaged in Ukraine. And that will begin, but mostly they'll warn about China. And if I'm asking the question, I don't know if you two are asking the question, I hope you ask, if China sails its Navy towards Taiwan, should we sink the ships? It's the number one question in the world today. And I think every Republican except the former president will give an unambiguous yes, I think. What do you so two think? Well, I think the Republicans will absolutely. Uh, I think Taiwan has become a little bit like the, should we move our embassy to Jerusalem? Should we rip up the Iran deal kind of a question where they'll all be, they'll all be on the right side of history. I think that the challenge, of course, is that by disinvesting in the U.S. military, because, of course, you said this absolutely correctly at the beginning of our conversation, you can't pick and choose at the Pentagon. You can't pay them month to month like you're some teen renter in a group house. It's not how the defense of the of the nation goes. And right now, if we continue you know, disinvesting in the military, because of course, you know, getting rid of woke policies inside the Pentagon isn't going to save any money, then we will actually not be positioned to defend Taiwan. We will be in a position where as China is at its strongest, we are historically at our weakest point with the smallest air force, the smallest navy, the smallest ground forces that we've had in, in more than 100 years. That is going to help dictate how people think about whether or not we can take on the forces of China, even against Taiwan, let alone against us. Yeah, but you, you go to war with the army you have, according to the late, great Donald Rumsfeld. And I, I do worry about that. It takes so long. I think the CNO said this week, we have only the industrial capacity in the United States to produce less than one and a half submarines a year. So we can't even help out AUKUS. I gather you're in Australia, Danny, or, or have been recently. We, we made commitments to them that we, we wrote checks that, that they're going to bounce because we don't have the industrial capacity, even if we wanted to give them everything. We can't make it. That's bad news. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, we have AEI has a an incredibly cool budget planner that is that you input money into and then it tells you what you can afford. So it's called the Defense Futures Simulator. Our folks ran the simulator with the kind of dollars that Congress is now talking about, not Democrats, but Republicans, but they'll find plenty of Democratic allies. And we're looking at serious crunch time in in 
only four years where we're going to be dropping down to smaller number of brigades in the army and defense-wide, we're going to be looking at very substantial cuts, 16%, 17%, that could be the difference in winning. So I really hope you are right, Hugh, because you got to win to deter people. You got you to gotta be strong to deter people. What did Reagan say? Peace through strength, yes. not, peace through, not peace through weakness. Danny, let me ask a question before we run out of time. I I know you guys are are stretched here. Is it time to take the triad down to two legs and give up on the missiles? Because we need the Columbia class. It's the one that survives. And we need the B-21 because it can go anywhere quickly. What do you think? Is it time to... I know that under classic uh, deterrence strategy, you had to have the bad guys hit the United States mainland in order to make assured mutual destruction relevant. But I don't know that anyone thinks in those terms anymore. What do do you two think? You think about this a lot. If we're really going to do it, it's not Chip Roy was going on about too many uh, uh, field uh, marshals and generals and admirals in the in the military. And, And I was thinking that's not real money. Real money is getting rid of a third of the triad. What do you think? Well, that is real money. The problem is we have come to depend on standoff weaponry. We have come to depend on our ability to do things from a distance. And if we start eating away at that, while you're right, I think there'll be a real savings. I think it would it would eat into our ability to actually deter the enemy, take on the enemy, and put us in a position where we need to confront from much more close quarters. You know, drones... Drones can't do everything. And for for all of our listeners who know how much I love Tom Cruise, you know, when you watch Top Gun, uh, the new movie, it's the battle between the guys who believe that human beings are not essential to battle and that everything can get done with a guy with a joystick in his hand back at Quantico or, you know, somewhere in California. It's not true. And we've seen that in combat any number of times. It's just not the way it works. So I don't, I think that the headquarters argument is absolutely right. We do have too many generals. We do have too many admirals, but you're right again, that's not going to save money. There are ways to save money potentially, but eating away at our at our strategic posture, I don't think is one of them. I would just add to that, Hugh, is that these are decisions that not, should not be made by Chip Roy and by Congress. We don't have uh, you know 535 commanders in chief. The structure of our military should be decided by you know, and I, again, I, I worked in the, I worked for the great late great Don Rumsfeld. I was in the Pentagon. I did budget head testimonies for him uh, explaining our force posture. And you do have a force posture review and you decide these things on the basis of careful analysis of the threats that our country faces and how we're, what our vulnerabilities are and how we protect our vulnerabilities. You don't do it because we can't get enough Republicans to vote for a, a proper defense budget. So we have to cut a leg of the triad out. If, if our military comes to the conclusion that we should cut a leg of the triad and spend that on something else, I'm willing to have that discussion. I'm not willing to have that discussion because Chip Roy doesn't want to support a, uh, a proper defense budget. Well, you know, that, that there's reality and there is reality. I, I do want to challenge both of you. The biggest problem I've seen in the last 10 years is that the traditional hawks on air haven't had the covering file. You know, Heritage has basically gone dark on defense. And I've met with Kevin Roberts, and I'm, I'm hopeful that they buff that back up. AEI is valiantly trying to stay in the game. But it does seem to me that national security, since 1989, actually, has not had the same oomph that it had when I was a young man working for Reagan. And that 
the one thing DC does is start the conversation. And it's been mostly about domestic policy and entitlements and very little about bad guys in China, because until very recently, we thought we we're going to save Russia and China because the end of history had arrived. Do you think the think tank world and the national security world is up to making the argument again to finding another committee for the common defense and the committee on the present danger and all those different things? Or is it is politics too wrecked for that? That is such an important question, Hugh. And look, you know, I AEI has doubled down on defense. You know, I stepped down as the leader of our department and the person who took over from me, Corey Shockey, is a defense hawk. We've hired a large group of people. We spend a lot of time looking at budget. We spend a lot of time making these arguments. But, you know, part of Part of the challenge, I think, is people only pay attention to national security when they're afraid. And during the Cold War, we were afraid of being destroyed by the Soviets. The problem is, you remember the 9-11 report? What was the line? This was a failure of imagination. That is what has afflicted us since the end of the Cold War, is this failure of imagination, the failure to understand how an attack on Taiwan an attack on the waterways that we use for trade, an attack on an American ally in NATO, all of those things will make you forget about the price of eggs in a heartbeat, just as 9-11 made us forget about every other priority that the president of the United States had articulated he wanted to work on. This is the problem. It's a fight we have internally at AEI as well, you know, reminding people, yeah, yeah, you can talk about inflation, you can talk about the Fed, you can talk about, you know, the fact that we ought to fix Amtrak and that our bridges are crumbling. But if there's an attack on our country or on one of our allies, we're going to forget about those things instantaneously. And if we can't fight, we're not going to win. And we spent $4 trillion in the last uh, three years, maybe it's five, on emergency money, not a dime went to any defense program. And if we get surprised in a way that the world, I re, I'm reading the World Crisis by Churchill right now, but which is the run up to World War I and then World War I, nobody saw it coming as late as 1913. Nobody thought it could happen. And I really worry that we are in that sort of a situation where we just don't believe it'll happen because it will be inconvenient to Twitter. God you, help you're, us. You're so right. I remember when I worked with Secretary Rumsfeld, we went to NATO and he read from the world crisis. And I'm going to paraphrase what he said, but he said a great statesman once uh, at the turn of the last century said, war is too foolish, too fantastic to be thought of. We have, thanks to the growth of international trade and liberal thinking and all the rest, these things are behind us now. And then the statesman said, it would be a pity to be wrong. And it was Churchill and we were wrong. And we learned the hard way in the 20th century. And I have no reason to believe that the 21st century will end up being less bloody than the 20th, especially if we don't get our act together to defend the world order. Uh, I because China. Is... Of, I, I hope you write a column for the Post about that, because I think that 1910 through 1913 period has got some pretty troubling parallels to ours right now. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Here, I, I found the quote. He said, this is from Rumsfeld's speech. We know this much for certain. It's unlikely any of us here knows what's likely. One statesman summed up the prevailing mood at the turn of the last century. War, he wrote, is too foolish, too fantastic to be thought of in the 20th century. Civilization has climbed above such perils. The interdependence of nations and trade and traffic, the sense of law, the Hague Convention, Liberal principles, high finance, common sense have rendered such nightmares impossible. Then he asked, are you quite sure? It would be a pity to be wrong. And then Rumsfeld said they were wrong and it was more than a pity. And that's where we are today. Wow. 
That's quite the quote. Where, where did he give that speech? Was that a NATO speech? That was, a, that was in, at Na his first meeting back at NATO in the NACD, the, the NATO Committee on Defense, uh, to all well, the NATO defense ministers. I won't steal that for a Washington Post column since you probably <laughs> wrote it for him. But that's a, hell of a, that's a hell of a quote, and it sums up our problem, a failure of it imagination, does. like Danny said. Yep. Hugh, quick exit question from me, and we have really overstayed our welcome with you, but it's been such, an, uh, such a pleasure having this conversation. Are you an optimist after the last two weeks watching the Republican Party immolate itself repeatedly? Are you an optimist about the future of the loyal opposition in the United States of America? I am, because uh, I, when people say the base, I always said, give me a definition. And my definition, my working definition of the quote, the base, is that you have had to have voted Republican at least five elections in a row, which means you have to be at least 26 and you've had to have been involved for at least 10 years. And you've had to do some indicia of involvement beyond mere voting. You had to have had a contribution, written a letter, walked a precinct, organized a meeting. And I believe the base of the Republican Party remains a very internationalist, very serious, very well-read professional class that is poorly represented by the knucklehead caucus. And uh, the Knucklehead Caucus presents difficulties to people like Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell saved the United States Constitution by holding up uh, the, uh, the vacancy created by the untimely death of, of Anthony Scalia. And he is routinely savaged by the extreme edge of the Republican Party. So we have to stop, uh, I believe strongly, uh, substituting the fringe for the base. The base is solid and will endure. And I think the base in the Democratic Party is more of a problem than their face in the Republican Party, I think. Uh, but people like Ro Khanna, he's a progressive. He's wrong about pretty much everything, but he's pretty serious about China. I wish he'd run for Senate in California, but then you get they're wackos. And each party has a problem that we've monetized the extreme. So I'm, a, I'm an optimist, but going to be a close run thing, as Wellington said of Waterloo. And we've got, we're going to find out by the end of 24. Exit question for me, Hugh. Um, sure. We learned that both the base and the fringe, the lesson of the 2022 midterms are not enough to win elections. You need swing voters. And we did, yeah. we've been doing a great job for something like three sub consecutive elections in alienating and driving away swing voters. And that's the reason why the knucklehead caucus is so empowered because they're the ones who drove away all these voters. You got Lauren Boebert, who could, who could barely win her own seat, is, you know, running the show on the House floor for a week. And, you know, these people are exactly why we lost uh, the 2022 midterms or did so poorly in them, and they've been empowered by it. Do you think we've learned our lesson from this election, or are the fringes going to be running the show in 2024? Well, you know, I, I think we didn't have a red wave. We had a series of red thunderstorms. Uh, the showing in Florida and Ohio tells me that good, solid leadership, especially Florida, I mean, they won everything that there was to win in Florida. And Florida is not, all, it used to be a purple state. Our problem is messaging and candidates. And if we nominate losers, they lose. What a surprise. And we nominated some losers. Mitch McConnell, I saw him after the election. He said, I got five names for you, Hugh. And he rattled off the five wacko job candidates that have lost in the last 15 years. And we give away Senate seats. I think. The country is fundamentally center-right, and if they are alarmed, like Danny mentioned, if they hear rhetoric like the kind you just quoted Secretary Rumsfeld, they'll come back to being serious. Uh, because nobody wants, uh, I'll close this way, I sat down to write a book with Mitt Romney when he's running for president the first time, I'd never met him, 
the first thing he asked me, I was kind of appalled at the time because I was like 50. He said, are you a grandparent yet? I said, no, I'm not. He said, well, once you have a grandchild, your point of view changes completely. Well, I am a grandfather now, and my point of view has changed completely. And I'm worried that the country isn't serious enough because its political structure is fractured and we've monetized nuttiness. And that's that's on the ballot in 24. You are you are not allowed to retire. <laughs> we, need you. we need your voice, man. We need I'm your going voice to 2028 uh, and then I'm hanging up the shingle. So then someone else, that's why everybody, the young people have to come along at some point. Thank you so much for your generosity. So it was really just a pleasure. Fun to talk to you both. It's a funny Thank call. You. I'm in California, Washington, Australia. It's great. Have a good afternoon and a great weekend, friends. Take care. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. So I double down on that. I don't, Hugh Hewitt is not allowed to retire. He may retire from radio, but I want him writing in the Washington Post. I want to still see him on Fox News. His voice is too important in the conservative movement right now to be hanging up, smoking cigars and drinking scotch, looking out at the California sunset. But here's the thing. I think he said something really important at the end, which is that Mitch McConnell saved the Constitution. I hadn't heard anyone put it quite that way. But that is absolutely true. The one thing that the conservative movement we have going for us, despite the knuckleheads, despite the poor performance in the midterms, despite the former president, as he refers to him, uh, continuing to menace the party, we've got a fantastic six, six to three majority on the, on the Supreme Court that is literally saving our the jurisprudence that they are doing in terms of our limited government and our constitutional rights is just spectacular. And none of that would have been possible without Mitch McConnell. And he gets no credit for it from anybody in the conservative movement. This, for me, really encapsulates the fight that's going on. Donald Trump, for some reason, has decided that Mitch McConnell is the enemy, notwithstanding all the facts that you just laid out, notwithstanding the role that he's played. The Democrats have their cocaine Mitch label. Some Republicans have signed on to that. And I I think it encapsulates everything that's wrong with a lot of the Republican Party these days, which is, you know what? (laughs) I always quote this about my conversation with John McCain not long after he lost the presidential race. And I said, and I said something to him and he said, Danny, winning is always better than losing. And, And that's exactly right. Winning is always better than losing. Mitch McConnell had rightly criticized the uh, the losers who lost election. He rightly stood up to efforts to place a candidate on the Supreme Court right as the as the Democratic majority was disappearing. He has been a real stalwart, and he yeah he's not a showboat. He's you know he's not he's not out there on Twitter uh, making fun of people. He's not out there in parades making an ass of himself. It's true, but he actually knows what to do to to win these fights and. That is the principle that should underpin the Republican Party going forward is, you know what? We want to win. You know why we want to win? It's not because we want to own the losers. It's not because we want to sock it to them and end performative policies in schools. It's because it's what the American people need to remain safe, secure, and prosperous. And that should be the animating story of the of the GOP. I, I'm not as optimistic as Hugh, but I sure as hell hope he's right. I do too. And by the way, Mitch McConnell's not going to cut defense. Uh, so we got that going for us. Well, you know what? Let's reach out to Mitch McConnell and get him on the podcast. He hasn't been on the podcast yet, Danny. I think, uh, I think it's time. 
that we have it is to be time. absolutely the, the yeah. once in future senate majority leader on this podcast that would be great that would be great and folks thanks for listening it's always a pleasure don't hesitate to join the conversation email us sign up to our substack and put yourself in the comments whatever you do we love to hear from you thanks take care let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.